The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the David Cassidy Connections, your podcast all about David, his fans, his music, friendships people have because of him and the impact he had on so many, as we hear from friends, musicians, actors, producers, broadcasters, and many more. I'm your host, Louise Poynton, and today my guest is former television news reporter and anchor Ken Owen. Ken talks about his passion for David's music since he was a boy, and explains why he credits David with helping him emerge from a shy boy into a confident young man who spent almost 20 years working in television. In 1994, he interviewed David by satellite and speaks about the importance of that encounter. He breaks down his favourite David recordings, observes how celebrity has changed and why we shall never see a superstar like David Cassidy again. Ken left television in 2001 to become Executive Director of Media Relations at DePaul University, where he later became Special Advisor to the President. He hosted and continues to direct the university's Euban Lecture Series, which have brought a range of high-profile visitors, including Bill Clinton, Tony Blair and Mikhail Gorbachev. We also talk about how the culture of news reporting has changed. But first, Ken explains how his passion for the Partridge family and David Cassidy's music all began. I had no idea that your passion for the Partridge family and David Cassidy went so deep. Oh, it's, it's, it's impacted much of my life. It's funny. Um, and I was very shy. Yeah, David and Paul McCartney, I think, were um, really critical to kind of getting me out of my shell and, uh, you know, creating that thing which was in me, but I didn't know was there. Um, and I, you know, David, uh, I was just thinking as I was upstairs, uh, I, I always had some pity for him. And I, I mean that in the dearest way. Uh, you know, he kind of was fed into the machine and, and never really escaped. And, uh, and God, he, he flailed. He tried. And, you know, most teen idols just go away. Or they do what Sean did, and they, they find another thing that they're very good at. But, uh, yeah, but he was born to perform. And it was, it was sad because once he was kind of pigeonholed, he never was able to, even with Blood Brothers, and he got great reviews. But uh, it was always, one more teen idols, David Cassidy. You're, you're never not that thing. Yeah, it, it's an awful burden for, for them all to carry. He was very unique in mm -hmm. his the way he presented himself, a very good-looking guy, and that, I think, for many, clouded their judgment. Yes. How can he be so good-looking? How can he be such a good, a good musician, a good actor? Nobody mm -hmm. seemed to really accept him beyond this image, and I think he... Um, he spoke about that in your one and only interview with him. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and he, um, it's it's hard. Well, we'll talk about this stuff because it's all it's all very interesting. But yeah. I think there's also, you know, David had a. Um, it doesn't matter. I'm straight, but uh, David had a very feminine side to him too. I mean, I think that there was something in men and women that you could relate to. That it was kind of like he wasn't. Donnie was, you know, Donnie was a, a teenage kid. You know, with, yes. with nice teeth and nice hair and nice brothers and a sister. Um, he was lucky in that, uh, I don't know if it was the Mormon thing or it was uh, the family thing, but uh, he, it always seemed like he wasn't kind of on a raft by himself. And with David, it was, you know, it was, you know, like the, the Beatles always say that uh, there were three other guys around. 
you know, so when things got crazy, they'd kind of get together and say, this is crazy. David didn't have that. And Donnie probably did to an extent with his brothers and his family and his, you know, I'm not a Mormon, but I assume his faith played into it. And, um, and I don't think he had the level of crazy that David had. David was, um, David looked like he'd been dropped, you know, from a different planet. I mean, he, he just, he had a different way about him. And I think one of the things that was really sad was, you know, there were the RCA records where he really tried to, to show that he could do things. And, um, and then another break in a man undercover series. And then the, the Enigma record, which I think lined to myself hit top 40, but it was not, um, it wasn't worked in the way it should have been. Uh, he just, and then why didn't romance come out in the States? Mm. I mean, I, I was, I was in a record store in Indianapolis one day, um, probably after a beer or two. And, um, you know, flipping through the CDs early in the CD, like 1985. And there's David Cassidy romance. It's right behind me on the shelf. I can find it for you. But, um, and you have it, I know, you know, it did not exist. I mean, we, we here in America didn't even know it existed. And yeah, here it is. It's like that. Um, but, uh, you know, so here's David Cassidy with his first record, basically since what getting into the street, I think, mm. am I right? Yeah. So it's seven or eight year gap. And it doesn't even come out in America, which seems crazy with George Michael on backing vocals on a track, which is crazy. Uh, so how did that happen? And then the Enigma thing, which, you know, he shows up on, he looks great and he's, he's kind of in fighting form and the record is moving along and then poof, that goes away. And then, you know, a couple of records that were, um, that didn't used to be was okay. But then he got into the, you know, covering stuff and he, he never really got off that train. It's like in 1992 or 93, he just kind of gave in the fact that he was a nostalgia act and, uh, and suffered for it. I think I was trying to look up the last time I saw him live. The only time I saw him live actually was at the Indiana State Fair. And it was a really sad show because um, it was, you know, it was, it was nostalgia. It was long, you know, I'll meet you halfway long. I think I love you. And uh, they're great songs. We both love them. But uh it, you know, he spent so many years complaining about being in the trap and then he, he inserted himself right back into it uh, full fledged because I guess that's how you pay your bills. But um, yeah. it was sad. It's, it's interesting. Whenever I speak to friends in the States, Keith Partridge is always there. Over here, he never really had that baggage with him. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And mm-hmm. he'd been on holiday in Italy and he suddenly just turned up to do some promotions with Bell. And his hair was long and greasy and he wore a long coat and furry boots. And he looked like a rock star. And he did look like a rock star. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And even though we had the Partridge family here, it wasn't on air for very long, only like three months. And it mm-hmm. didn't come back on again for, for some time. So when he came yeah. over here, he was the real rock star. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. The sad piece of that is that he didn't, you know, the stuff he was putting out was against somebody else's. Um, he, he still didn't have a musical identity. He, he related more to that music, but he wasn't allowed to create music or he didn't permit himself to make music. You know, he might be able to present to people and say, hey, I just wrote this and it's great. Exactly. And, I mean, you once said that you'd observed that you felt you could have managed him. Oh, yeah. And yeah. taken him to a, a different place. What would you actually have done to have made it better for him? And I was thinking about that. You know, I'm, I'm friends with Todd Rundgren. Todd's different from David in that Todd is 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 such an artiste in, in you know in, in the way he views it. There's business and there's art, and so there's and there's a big highway between the two. So the business people take care of business, and he takes care of the art. And I think 
management is such a tricky thing. But um, when I was in high school and college, I could not stand Todd Rundgren because uh, I loved his hits, but I, I could never understand his eccentricities. And it's now the eccentricities that I love. It's kind of interesting. But uh, in 1977, backstage with somebody is talking about how, you know, records at some point, we're not going to have records. You're just going to go somewhere. It's just going to come into your home through some system. And this is pre-internet, pre-everything. So, I, you know, I like my records though. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, I mean, there's, there's a story behind every record I own. And right. seeing this for the first time and thinking, God, where did that come from? I don't know what you feel, but I feel he was totally underappreciated. Incredible singer. And in fact, you know, anyone that's really listened to David Cassidy critically will go, God, that guy can sing. You can, you can question the material, you can question the outfit, you can question, you know, any number of things, the arrangement, but the guy could sing. Let's talk about growing up watching the Partridge family and how big an influence the music, the show and David Cassidy was on your life. Well, um, and thanks, Louise, for the opportunity to do this. This is terrific. And you're terrific. Thanks for all you do on behalf of David Cassidy and his legacy. Really, it's great. Um when I was, I guess Partridge Family came on in, was it late 70 or early 71? It would have been September. 19, September 25, 1970. I, I love your accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> Precise. Um, when it first came on, I remember, you know, the first record. And I remember a couple of people in my circle of friends. I was nine, about to turn 10, talking about this show. And I was watching the Brady Bunch at the time. Uh, it just seemed like the last thing I needed was another family to follow. Uh, of course, all I had was time on my hands and there were three channels. So I don't know what I was worried about, but uh, it, I probably was reluctant at first. I think I Love You did not strike me initially as a song I would really like to be a nine-year-old boy and to see this guy. But that, that's the guy you wanted to be. That, you wanted to be, you know, taking uh, Bonnie Kleinschmidt to the taco stand. You wanted to be driving around in a convertible. You wanted to be singing. You wanted to be, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. They had this great lifestyle. I and mean, they'd always play these little clubs with like 12 people in there, but, um, but they had it going on. And um, so as a young boy, you know, you're, um, I think there are two things that, that matter to you being appealing to girls and then um, having fun, you know, having a life where you're doing things that you like and that you're carefree about. And David really conveyed that, you know, through his, his persona. And I grew up as a kid and I, I you had to admire Elvis and I have many, many, many of his records, but there's some back there too that you can't see on camera. Well, I like music, uh, but um, Elvis was always, you know, he's kind of greasy and he had the leather jacket on and he looked like, you know, I'm sure if you put David Cassidy and Elvis Presley in a, in a fist fight, it'd be a draw, but uh, he conveyed this kind of, you know, uh, other side of the street thing. I mean, David was the all American boy, but there was a, there was a lightness to him uh, in some ways. And, you know, when people weren't even talking about, gay people on television and he wasn't gay but he he conveyed a femininity that was you know unusual for the time not unlike David Bowie really if you look back at it yeah there was something about his character that was very different about what you saw on television yeah you didn't see he's kind of flippant kind of he's cool he's nice you know he's a good brother um so there were a lot of takeaways you could get from David Cassidy and then you know the music was uh they hired him not knowing he could sing, really. And, you know, that, that became the real treat. You were treated to a song every week. And uh, it, 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 was, it was a magical thing, being a kid growing up in that world, because we didn't have all these, you know, silly devices. And we weren't... Life was simple. Oh, my Lord, yes. Uh, but uh, the other thing is we had a common language. You know, we, uh, you're in the UK, I'm in Indiana. Um, 
because of technology then it was so limited. Um, each of us has a broadcast tower and a printing press these days. Back then, you needed to be a network or a newspaper, a chain, you know, but uh, there, were, there were so few people controlling information, which in many ways is a bad thing. But I really think it's important to have gatekeepers. You know, we're learning that today. Um, just making anybody the chief of police isn't a good thing, right? And uh, I mean, you need some special skills and training and uh, experience to do that. I think the other thing is that... Um, because there were three channels, you went to school on Monday. Someone would say, did you watch uh, Sandy Duncan had a show? Did you watch? Oh, no, I don't watch Sandy. I watch the Brady Bunch and the Parker Channel. But you knew all the shows that were on. Now you go to a party and somebody says, hey, have you watched this show? And you go, I, where did you see that? Oh, Hulu or, you know, Netflix. And <laughs> it's, it's a foreign language. It's like somebody, you know, speaking a Mandarin to me. I just have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, but we had these things and they were important because when you went to school, you could talk about, you know, Danny did this crazy thing and Ruben had to bail him out of it. As, as silly as that is, you know, we had this glue that brought us together as people to talk about things. And nowadays it's, we're siloed and whether it's music or it's politics or whatever it is, you've got your own individual brand. You may have friends that never even consider the things that are in your world. And we've lost something there. I mean, I think uh, it was simple and in some ways it was kind of quaint, but uh, quaint isn't always bad. So yes, um, I, I quickly became um, a supporter. And then um, when I got into it, I got into it in a big way. It was a pure escapism as well, because I'm, I'm, I know in the States, you were just coming out of a very dark period and you needed something bright and colorful and, and cheerful. And we got Watergate, you know how? <laughs> Well, we'll come on to journalism later. <laughs> Washington Post. <laughs> like you were saying just now, we needed in our lives someone we could identify with. And I found it always rather resentful that you had to like one of the Beatles and you had to like one of the monkeys. Yeah. And suddenly this solo artist bursts onto the scene and he belongs to you. He's from he your does. era and someone you can relate to and helps to give you an identity. Uh, David was um, carefree, whimsical, fun. And I think the, the really critical thing to think about, I think about this a lot, music and culture in the 90s really turned dark. And it was starting to turn dark in the mid 70s. We were exploring themes in movies and television even that we weren't, you know, the 50s were just Warden June and, you know, where's, where's my sweater and my slippers and the newspaper over there? You know, it was it was so far toward the bland. And I mean, great stuff there, too, but of the time. But I think David can convey to happiness, um, a contented, a contentedness. Uh, he was um, the character. Keith Partridge was very confident. Um, yeah, he had quirks. And he, you know, when he was alone, he'd, he'd convey the confidence and then he'd go. Yeah. But uh, he was a lot like a lot of us were and uh, vulnerable. In, in certain ways, not uh, overly emotionally so, and not like, you know, wrestling with his conscience all the time, but trying to grow up, you know, trying to get a date for the, for the prom, trying to write the next hit song as Keith Partridge. Um, and so you could identify with that, but you know, it was all, the arc was all up. It was all good. You know, there weren't episodes where he, he got one of his classmates pregnant or, you know, they abused opioids in the, the, the men's room of the school. Maybe, maybe that's, Pollyanna stuff, you know, maybe that's mm. reflective of the, the kind of blissful time we, we grew up in. But, I, you know, I think that conveys to your life. And I think um, there are pieces of David Cassidy, who I never met in person once, interviewed him by satellite and saw him live. But uh, there, are, there are elements of him in my personality to this day. 
And um, that's that's a powerful thing when you're, uh, you know, you, you're given the platform and and you use it for good and uh, and you're able to convey things that uh, not only are good, but but are meaningful to people. He did a lot of good for a lot of people as Keith Partridge and beyond. When you interviewed him that day in 1994, when he was sitting in Disneyland, that must have been quite a surreal moment because I, I know that it was unprepared. I used to sit in the newsroom with uh, Patty Spittler, who uh, was my co-anchor at 530. The, the newsroom was in the basement of the building, not an attractive room at all, but there might have been 70 of us down there at a given point. Mm-hmm. And so Patty was the entertainment reporter. And literally, she was on the a list of celebrity interviewers, but then she'd get these things where you can interview ex celebrity um, via satellite, which means you know you sit in the chair upstairs and they're somewhere in the studio and you banter back and forth and it's recorded on your end. You edit something together and you put it on the air. Usually they're promoting a record or a movie. It uh, for them it avoids the, the trouble of you know go, going somewhere. They're just going to the studio and they can do thirty stations in one day. So um, I'm down there and it must have been like. 1.30 in the afternoon too. And she got busy doing something. And she said, I think somebody came down and said, um, we're ready for you upstairs, Patty. And she said, oh, I'm just going to cancel this thing. And I said, what, do you, what is it? And she said, oh, it's David Cassidy. And I said, if you can't do it, I'll do it. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to do it. And I mean, it literally came together like that. So uh, I was, I, uh, my tie was off and, you know, I was, you know, we were three and a half hours from airtime uh, probably. And so I had about 90 seconds to get up the stairs uh, not lose my breath in doing so, sit in the chair, make sure I didn't look like, you know, some sweaty guy and, um, and just fire away. So as I'm, as I'm making the trip upstairs, which is probably like 140 steps, you know, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? You know? And I think he, I, I looked at it again today. It was July 1st, 1994, actually. And there I get, I get to throw a date at you. Um, he was at Disney world. And I think it was just, you know, I think they just, um, would bring celebrities in and have them do these things to just show off Disney World and get three or four minutes on the local news that night with, you know, Mickey Mouse in the background, plant little seeds in little people's heads. I, yeah, I got up there and, you know, you, you've seen it. Uh, he thinks it's going to be Patty. It's Ken. I guess I really wanted him. I, I, I've always felt uh, some pity for David because um, he was fed into this machine that made him a star. And he, he was able to parlay that into a long career and fame. And, you know, he's someone that um, got to do what few people do, but he didn't always get to do it on his terms. And um, once you jump into that waiting pool, it's almost like it's got some sulfuric acid in it or something. You know, you're never quite the same. And I mm-hmm. think he, he struggled with it. And uh, he was a person who had great talent. He, he bounced better than most teen idols do. Most teen idols being a teen idol today is a lot different than it was in 1970 because um, you've seen what happened with One Direction and some of these bands. People aren't as tainted as they were back then, but back then you had the serious musicians and the people who didn't bathe, whatever, whatever their thing was, or you know they played a mean guitar. And if your first exposure to someone is is smiling Keith Partridge with the little necklace on, you know you think, okay, he's you know he, he's Hollywood, he's playing something, but the guy could sing. And the guy was not a bad actor, and um, he he was uh, anyway fed down the chute. So when I when I went up the stairs, the one thing I wanted to convey to him through his little earpiece was that uh, you know you, you, you've done some really good things, and uh, and I I know you're trying. Uh, it's not in vain, and you know keep slugging. I think that was it's interesting to think back today in 
2021 to 1994, you know, he had Partridge Family obviously happened. He signed to RCA and he had the three records that uh, I, they didn't know what to do with him. I don't think the public knew what to do with him, but um, then he went away for a while again, the David Cassidy Man Undercover. There was the Enigma record with Lion to Myself on it, which uh, hit the top 40 and he looked great. He was in fighting shape. It looked like he was going to roar back. I don't think that label had the promotional heft to, you know, really keep that boat going. And I think um, part of it may, may I like the album, but I think part of it may, there may not have been a second single on that that was strong enough. And uh, my recollection is the label pretty quickly had financial problems. In 1994, he, you know, he'd had another top 40 hit five years before. He'd had the Didn't You Used to Be record, which was okay. But he was journeying back into kind of a no man's land where uh, he wound up kind of living the rest of his days. Uh, as much as he was pained by what the Teen Idol experience did to him and cognizant of the fact that he was sitting in places like Disney World because he was Keith Partridge, he wanted to be David Cassidy. He wanted to express himself and, 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 and put his voice out there. It's, it's just ironic and sad that I think it was after that, 94, 95, he had the a touch of blue. Um, yeah, maybe it was 2000 or so, but he, mm. he forayed more into the, the redoing stuff, um, covering other people's stuff. And again, he was a great singer. But the thing that always bothered him and the thing that I always craved, and you probably did too, was more of the real him. Uh, you know, walking the plank. And it, it's not as easy as that. Uh, you, you get a record deal and somebody says, hey, you know, we need something that sounds like this, or we got to remind people of the fact you're that guy. Uh, so you never clearly escape it. So this is my copy of Romance. And um, you guys across the pond, I mean, you probably had this you know, stacks of these in the store, right? Mm, yeah. But it was 1985 or six. I was at a store in Indianapolis. I was just amazed. Number one, I'd never seen a David Cassidy CD. We in, in America didn't even know this record existed. And that's another shameful thing is that uh, Arista, which put this out with George Michael singing backing on the Last Kiss, didn't even release it in America, getting it in the street. When that record came out in 1977, I had bought Home is Where the Heart Is. And I, I, I literally searched for that record because I knew it was out there. But you could not find a copy of that. It took me until I was probably 40 years old to get that record because uh, I don't know if, if RCA just decided, you know, they, they pressed the record and decided this thing's not going anywhere and they just dumped him in a cutout bin. That's kind of the legend. I yes. Think that was a superb album. Yeah, he worked with some terrific people and he started to write some really wonderful songs with Jerry Beckley. If he'd been able to put a proper band together, I think it would have relaunched his career i agree i agree and i, I you know damned if this ain't love from home is oh. where the heart just a great song when i was in college i would play that on the radio so it would have been 1979 80 and i would never announce on the front end who it was and you know the people would call and they go oh that's a good song who's that it's david cassidy wow or his cover of tomorrow which is better than paul mccartney's oh, uh, and i love paulie but uh wildlife is a pretty stripped down record but david really um, realized you know the power of that song through the the production of that, that record. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it, back to the Teen Idol thing, um, you know, if I were the king of the forest, if I <laughs> do my best cowardly lion, if I were managing David Cassidy and, and yeah. he'd be in real trouble then, I probably would have convinced him and he, he, he would have pushed back that he should have gone, put together the band you described and just play, played clubs. You know, go to the Troubadour, go to play some backhole place in Nebraska, play at some bar down the street here in Indianapolis. But reinvent yourself from the ground up and let people know that, you know, I'm, I'm serious about this. Now, the problem is 
and we have it in our lives, you get to a certain level in your life, you know, you, you expect a certain income. Um, there's a certain level of pain in the patoot of, you know, leaving the house and doing things. And so mm-hmm. you expect to make it be rewarding. He'd already reaped all the benefits of being Keith Partridge and the Partridge Family Records, his solo stuff. He has cred. I mean, I think musicians, and I, I spent a lot of time around musicians in my life, all, you know, they know the voice. I mean, Bobby Sherman couldn't sing. I mean, he couldn't not sing, but it, it wasn't anything special. And David Cassidy, when he sang, he owned a song. I, I think a lot about the time between Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes, first RCA record, The Higher They Climb. I'm sure he really had to be let down by the, the response those records got. I mean, I think there were people that, lo- that loved them and got like you, we did, but, and there were critics that embraced them to a degree, but it was always the, you know, he's trying a comeback. It's a, you know, he's reinventing himself. It, it, it was always a, the ghost of Keith Partridge is always in the back of the room glaring at him. And then, you know, romance, I think, again, how that wasn't released in America, because it was a huge hit in the UK, was it? It was. It was. Huge. So, you know, he was almost like a whack-a-mole. He just kept popping up and, you know, but some, something was knocking him down. Uh, I think he finally, by the time we did that interview, and he, you know, he, he looks great. He sounds great. He's happy, seemingly. Yeah, the demons just took over and it, it's really sad. I saw him, the only time I saw David Cassidy live, and I always wanted to see him in his heyday. Actually, I saw him twice. I, I'm forgetting, I saw him open for the Beach Boys. It's a big shed here up in Noblesville that they call it, back then they called it Deer Creek Music Center. And I remember I was visiting my parents in Chicago and I left early because I was determined to see David Cassidy live. This would have been 1989 or 90, probably 90. So this place, it, it, the capacity is by 22, 25,000. I got to the venue, parked in the lot and somebody offered me a free ticket. Great. So I walked up, David came out, he did Lying to Myself. He did three or four songs from the, the then current record. Looked great. You know, he sounded great. He was the opening act. People seemed to be into it. So I saw him that night and there was that energy and hope that maybe, you know, maybe there's a second, third, fourth act for this guy playing in a big shed and, you know, having the energy of a rock star. And then I saw him in 2007 at the Indiana State Fair and he was, um, well, he'd fallen into the, you know, the kind of the same show he was doing toward the end. You know, not great um, mementos. I mean, it's great to have anything, but basically doing the thing that he complained about through the 80s and 90s, I'm, you know, I'm not Keith Partridge, I'm better than the, I mean, the Partridge family is wonderful, but I'm a different person. I have different musical tastes and, you know, you just got the same set of songs every night with a couple of covers thrown in. And again, we, we wanted, wanted to see him. I think a lot about, you know, his half-brother, Sean, and uh, David had, I'm presuming, well, Cassidy Live was probably the last record on his deal with Bell. Sean had one record left on Warner Brothers and he, he had two ways to go. He could have made another Sean Cassidy record, but he hired Todd Rundgren and, uh, Wasp was the result, and it is it is so weird. Uh, and the fact that Sean Cassidy basically slammed the door on his pop idolness by making a record with a Talking Heads and David Bowie cover and some weird originals that Todd wrote. Oh, now, now Sean was when he did that, he was done, and I realize he's been performing again a little bit lately, which is great. But what, you know, what a final kind of last act is to you know say defiantly. You think that's Sean Cassidy? This is Sean Cassidy. And uh, yeah. and to make the record you really want to make. And David never really got that chance. 
Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes is probably as close as he came to that. That one confounded his his younger fans, uh, covering things like Valley High. And oh, yeah. There's two things there. First of all, his music, when he was doing covers of various songs, and be they songs from Hollywood musicals or from uh, the likes of, of the Beatles or um, Chicago, that introduced everyone to a whole new set of music. Yes. So because of him, you know, your world of music opened up to far more serious music. But also, wouldn't you consider that the higher they climb, he was trying to send out a message? This is what it was like. It was hell on earth. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, to make a concept record and to make it basically about yourself without, you know, ever identifying as that person. But it's, yeah, the higher they climb, the harder they fall. You've got this great, you know, cherubic young guy reaching for a star on the front cover with a guitar slung over his shoulder in the back. He's just, it's like Beirut. I mean, he's, he's just, he's been blown up. And, uh, and I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Part of it is you know, he signed to RCA and I'm sure our RCA looked at the stats and said, Oh, look at all those records he sold for Bell. He's still got to have some fans. Um, but I don't think they had a real strategy for him or for marketing. it. Like get it up for loves a good song. I guess if you're a radio program director, what do you do with it? And, and who is the, the desirable audience? You're going to have trouble getting airplay. You're going to have trouble. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to spend a couple of weeks just thinking about, you know, what I would do. But I think in, in a way, once he sang, I think I love you as Keith Partridge, that's his musical epitaph to this day. I mean, that, that's embedded in most people's minds. It is far from David Cassidy's greatest moment by far. It, it's hard to shake that. You know, it's, it's you know, back to Todd Rundgren. Uh, the first song he ever wrote when he was 16 is Hello, It's Me. He can't stand the song. He ripped it off of Jimmy Smith or somebody, you know. It's it's his albatross. But like David, you know, it, it's that thing that people go, hello, Todd, it's me. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you got that, right? Now, how many people would not love to have a song that identifies them? I was going to ask you, Ken, with mm-hmm. Todd having worked with Sean, do you know if he ever would have liked to have worked with David? We never discussed it. Uh, I, I will ask him one of these days. Um, I know how much you, you like getting it in the street. I do, yes. I feel that it was mishandled. Yeah. But working with Mick Bronson, working with Jerry Beckley, who, who produced the album, he was going to be working with David Bowie and Elton John wanted to produce him. And you wonder what happened. Yeah. Was it because he perhaps didn't believe in himself enough or think if I change myself musically too much... Are they still going to like me? Was it a question of self-worth? I'm sure it was. I think in the end, it was like David never really had too many opportunities to identify his his actual voice. Uh, you Can't Go Home Again from uh, Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes is one of my favorite songs. It's a song he really inhabits, and it's a very melancholy song, obviously. And in many ways, that's, that's the story of his life. Um, once he walked on the set the first day of the Partridge family, the David Cassidy that existed up until that moment was gone. And there was no getting the genie back in the bottle. And, you know, the nice homes, pretty women, all the stuff that he enjoyed. I, there's, it's not like it's the saddest story of all time. But we all get wistful about that time in our lives where things made more sense, where the people we all loved were alive, you know, all these things. And, and that song kind of embodies what it is to start seeing the treadmill moving. You know, you realize that I'm not going to be a kid forever. I'm not going to have the big head of hair and the big teeth. And uh, yeah, someday I'll be just like my grandfather. And, and there is that feeling that um, when we were watching the Partridge family as kids, 
it was just this world of possibility. But this range of young people who had nothing but their lives in front of them. Yeah, he had that kind of magical window. And maybe maybe those three RCA records, as good as they are, but because they were so poorly promoted and they really didn't have a place in the marketplace, maybe they they created clutter in a moment where he needed clarity. I don't know. I mean, I would not want those records to go away. I love them. I- Is it not quite common, though, for artistic and talented people, as you said, said to me before, to sometimes make some very poor decisions? Oh, they're awful. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not a criticism at all. I think um, there are business people that you would never want to put on a stage with a guitar. You know, I, I'm not sure I want to see Steve Cook from Apple or Richard Branson, you know, in tight pants singing, um, you know, band on the run. Uh, no. So yeah, keep them out of that. And then I think, you know, artists, if they're, if they're really creative people, and there are creative people, like I would say Mick Jagger is a hell of a businessman, but most, most artists don't have the time for it. They hire people. And if they're smart, they get good people. If they're unlucky, they get a guy that they met, you know, on tour once and, you know, the guy can balance a checkbook and, but the rest of it, maybe not. This is, this is maybe my greatest uh, parable in terms of management. Uh, And it's a true story. John Landau is the manager of Bruce Springsteen. And he took over in between Born to Run and Darkness. And so they were in the studio recording Born in the USA. And uh, Bruce wasn't really at the megastar level. He was a, a favorite of critics. He was selling a lot of concert tickets. He was selling a lot of records, but he wasn't that guy. And so they, they went to the studio. They recorded a ton of songs. It was 30, 40, 50, I don't know. And they got to the end, the final day, and Springsteen came around and said to Landau, well, Jesus, you know, we got, we got a record here. And Landau said, no, we don't. And Bruce, again, I've, I've read the story, so I believe it to be true, yeah. allegedly told uh, Landau, uh, or no, Landau told Bruce, um, you've got, you know, you've got some good songs in here, Bruce, but if we want to have this record go to the level we want it to go to, you need a, a screaming hit. You need something right out of the box that's going to be number one, and, you know. And they got into it, you know, it was a pretty, pretty tense conversation. And Springsteen went back to the hotel, came back the next day with this song. And he said, here it is. You know, it was Dancing in the Dark. Listen to the record is completely, you know, foreign to most of the record. And it's, it's, it's an oddity in his catalog. It, it's got strains of Young Turks by Rod Stewart in it, really, if you listen to it. But it's, you know, the do, 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 do. I mean, it's, it's, it's an earwig. It gets in your head and not let go. Then you throw in the Courtney Cox video. And, you know, Bruce in the T-shirt and the jeans and, you know, you got a number one record. And so that record, Born in the USA, uh, produced four or five singles. But that was the one that came out of the gate as a screamer, which sold the album, which sold singles, which got him on MTV and even better airplay, more spins. And the rest is history. So, um, you know, sometimes a manager just has to say it's not the time for that. And I guess if, if in David's case, didn't you used to be was a, was a, a fine record. There was nothing wrong with it, but it was, you know, it was a little rudderless. I, I just don't know that he knew where he was going at that point. And the things that followed were, you know, doing that dance remix record, which actually isn't bad, but well, what's the use? And again, if, if you spent 20 years of your life complaining about this thing that's dragged you down, Keith Partridge, why, why you keep getting back in bed with him? You know, kick him out, find a different mate. But I, I think he could have done a superb job singing the American Songbook. I think so. You know, I, I, I that ground is so fertile in terms of it's so plowed. I guess I don't know what I think about that stuff. I just I just don't know that he ever really found a niche. That um, I mean, lying to myself was uh, it was derivative, but it was it was it, it showcased mm-hmm. voice 
it was a song that fit into radio perfectly. That was one of those rare times where it just, he had something deliverable that I think people could digest. I, I think um, it, the, the rudderlessness is, is what was sad. And when I saw him in 2007 to see those, uh, he's, the stage pattern was the same every night. It was a forced enjoyment. You could tell that he was, um, he, he was starting to really remind me of his dad in terms of mannerisms and in terms of, uh, you know, it, was, uh, it wasn't natural. And, and the great thing about David is um, he was, you know, when, when he was really good, he was natural and it just happened. The takeaway was from that show that I, I, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, and the 89 show when he was an opening act, there was this, again, sense that um, there could be new things coming. Uh, it's not over yet. You know, he's still he still has the exuberance mm-hmm. by the 2007 show. He'd become a nostalgia act and, and embraced it fully. Yeah, I, I don't know what the secret would have been, but the, the irony to me has always been, and I love Paul McCartney. Um, and, and Paul really has done a great job in recent years. Great that he's cranking out as much as he is. It, it's, it's interesting that a guy could write a song like Yesterday or Eleanor Rigby when he's 25. You know, you write Biker Like an Icon when you're 55. Complete throwaways. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how is it here, there, and everywhere? When you're 80 years old, 75 years old, there are, those, those things ought to be coming in spades, right? Because you've got all this yeah. life experience and, you know, Linda died and the heartbreak in your life. And no, but it's, it's funny. You've got a window in your life. I think everybody does artistically where the really rich batter is created. You know, if, if you're lucky and like Paul, he's also very skilled and that's saying he's lucky. But uh, if you, if you keep at your craft, you know, you'll occasionally, you know, it's, I think McCartney three is brilliant for what it is. Uh, the fact that a guy his at his stage of his career is putting records out and there's there's no upside because he, he doesn't play the songs live uh, and people really aren't buying records. You know, music is like water now. You know, you just you turn it on and you turn it off and you get a bill, but it's not much. And the artists aren't getting paid. So um, the fact he's doing it means that he has he still has things he wants to say. Of course. Well, I don't think the creativity ever leaves you. You know, if you're no, 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 but, but you know, it's how, so you, you go back to like dreams are nothing more than wishes. And so you get through rock me baby, which is basically cherish too. It's okay. That record is, it, it, I love it. It's so grown up. It's not a kick in the groin to his young fans, but it's, it's a way of acknowledging that that's not the way I think. Was that the right record for the moment? Probably not. But, you know, you've got people like Michael McDonald on there and Kim Carnes. He was in very good company. And that, I, so, you know, back to the authenticity thing, I think, yeah, I just I, I wish that he would have taken more of those kind of detours and, you know, commercialism be damned. And if he could do it then, because Rock Me Baby sold a lot of copies and Dreams probably didn't do badly. Yeah, that, that was him kind of imagining a different David Cassidy. In, in 1994, when I interviewed him, I, I, I just, I wanted him to go back to that. And, and you were, we brought up the, the shows. Um, what was a little, he was in the, I know he played Chicago, uh, Little Johnny Jones, was it? I found that ad on one of my old beta tapes and it's up on my YouTube channel. He's in a jockey's uniform. He looks like he's about four foot eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like a little boy. Again, those those things gave him something to do. They put him in front of an audience that was good for him. But I think they kind of sidetracked him from being the artist that he probably wanted to be. You're going to have people. You're going to have promotion. Those are all good things. You see, compared to going into the recording studio and releasing albums, he didn't want to tour. And that would be like Daniel Craig saying, I'm not going to promote the new Bond film. Right. You're never able to square that circle. No, uh, unless you unless you just say, I'm going to tour on my own terms. So yeah. I'm going to play thousand seat theaters or 700 person clubs. 
And, um, and yeah, I'm going to move in a, in a distinct direction. And a lot of the old fans are not going to come along, you know, back to Todd Rundgren. He's done that over and over and over. I mean, I, I've, I've been in shows where people are waiting for, I saw the light and uh, hello, it's me and bang the drum all day. And they're probably not going to hear them. And, you know, after eight songs, they leave the hardest thing about being an artist, I think, and I, I'm not one, but, um, you have success and then you have to remind people of your success. I mean, the, one of the reasons you've got as many people in the hall is you had success. So you can't shrug it off. You've got to play those songs. Uh, you've got to satiate them. And, but at what expense? And do you still like those songs? And do you perform them with energy? Do they drag down your show? So I grew up in Chicago and I was, I always liked music. My parents uh, always had music playing in the house. And in fact, uh, they ran a music series in Chicago. Uh, Bill Evans played in my living room. I, Don Shirley, I met Don Shirley when I was probably wow. five. My dad emceed our Great Charles concert at Morgan Park High School in the 60s. They got lost on the, they got stuck somewhere on the expressway. So the show was supposed to start, I think, at eight. And it was 9.15 by the time they finally arrived. So, yeah, when the Partridge family came on, that was like, at first, I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't, I just, I thought it was our girls, you know, probably. <laughs> um, when I finally actually, you know, let myself be open to the idea of it, I liked it a lot. And I quickly got the records and I had a little record player up in my bedroom, little plastic thing that, you know, we all had those little kid record players, but I'd often go to bed at night with Sound Magazine. Uh, that was probably my disc of choice because um, that's probably when it ramped up. And that's probably my favorite record, I think, in terms of all of them. So when I was 14, 15, um, I was a pretty shy kid and I didn't, I had glasses and I, at that point I had braces and I was always kind of small, which is probably another reason that I like David. He was, he was, he was never the guy that was going to, you know, win the fight. I had a music teacher, Doris Osmond, and uh, she saw something in me and, um, they put me in the boys ensemble first, so, boom, 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 stupid stuff. And um, she gave me the nickname of Pixie because I was always smiling. I, my, my confidence started to, to build in terms of, you know, my ability to perform in front of people and be on a stage and carry things. So I decided I was going to try out for the music man. And I was 16. The way those things usually worked is they double or triple cast them and the, the seniors would always get them. And if there were three seniors, you were screwed. But in this case, there was one senior you knew was going to get it. And he, he was a good guy. Uh, there was another senior that was going to try out. He'd probably get it. And if I got lucky and I didn't screw up, you know, I might have a chance at doing Thursday night. You learn all those lines and you, you go through all that hell and you do it once. But I will say that there is nothing better. I was on television 20 years. There's nothing that competes with being on a stage. You finish a song. It's a little bit out of your range. You nail it. And, you know, 1,200 people stand up. You know, I could die at that moment. It, it just doesn't get any better. It reminds you that you're alive. But um, just to fast forward the story, uh, I used to go to bed every night with a little, you know, back when we had cassette players, they weren't stereo, little player, plastic, and you'd stick the little thing in your ear and I'd play the Music Man soundtrack every night. And every once in a while, I'd uh, mix it up. I'd play either Home is Where the Heart Is or... Um, and Venus and Mars. So uh, I got the part. And I remember going in for the audition and, you know, just feeling, and I still had my glasses, still had my braces. They came off like five days before the show. It was perfect. I got contact lenses and their braces were gone. Everything worked out. Anyway, um, uh, David and Paul McCartney, in terms of just uh, the way they could sell a song and, and with optimism, 
with buoyancy really informed my young singing. Yeah, David was David was definitely an influence just on my, you know, and even the way I carry myself, I think right. uh, there's a lightness to him um, that's that's happy and it's kind and it's it's open to being your friend. I give David Cassidy partial credit for the fact that I ever walked on a stage and sang a solo. I give David Cassidy credit. I was already doing radio as a 14 year old. There's a, a, a key chunk of my confidence. The story I just told watching David and watching Paul McCartney and not just as a singer, but just the way, the way he comports himself and not copying. You know, I, I would always tell young journalists about if you're going to be on television, don't ape anybody, you know, don't, you know, part of the joy of life is you, you find little things and you put them in your basket and you make your own little thing that, yeah, it is, you know, unidentifiable. People wouldn't say, you know, he's that or he's that, but it's a cohesive thing that embodies a lot of things that maybe have similarities. Was journalism always going to be your destiny? No. Uh, in fact, I thought news people were boring. My goal from the time I was like seven was to be a disc jockey because you work a four-hour shift, you play records, and girls call you. <laughs> you know, will you play this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Susie, where are you go. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're seven or eight or nine, it's like, it's like an entree to everything cool, right? And, you know, you get promo records and, you know, there's so, yeah. And you can see... I haven't given up my fascination with music. It's, yeah, yeah there, so there was something about that. And it, it uh, I actually used to go to the Chicago radio stations on the train and um, just sit and watch people. But I, I lived with my AM radio all day long. And I would go to the record store every week and get the new survey and just see what the top 40 were. Right. Um, and cheer on my favorites. And yeah, so the idea of wearing a tie and, you know, going to crime scenes, uh, you know, sitting through city county council meetings, not sexy. Now, the girls and the records and the four hour shifts were a lot better. But I got to be a senior in college and I was the station manager of our station at DePauw. Yeah, it was probably middle of my senior year. I realized someday I'm going to be old and haggard and uh, the records that they, they'll hand me a list of records and I won't even know what they are. I won't like them. It'll be distasteful. Um, the girls that call me, if they call me, are going to have to put their teeth in before they do. There were all these, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, you start to realize that you're not going to be a young punk. Uh, someday you gotta, you got to grow up. So I took a journalism class, and I found myself really enjoying it. And then I got a job. It was an internship, actually. And after three weeks, they hired me at $4.50 an hour to uh, anchor and report the news in Indianapolis. And so I was driving 100 miles round trip every day, running the radio station in college, doing the news at night in Indy. And then my girlfriend broke up with me. And I, I, I was probably one of those moments where if I, if I still had a girlfriend, I probably would have veered back into this jockeying or something. I wasn't yet very good at journalism. Probably for a 21-year-old, I wasn't bad, but um, I had a long way to go and a lot to learn. Because that relationship ended, I kind of doubled down on kind of making me the best me I could be. And at that moment, I was working in radio doing news. And so I just kept charging ahead and really never looked back and worked for my alma mater. Can you remember the first anchor show that you hosted? On television, yes. Radio, I can't. I mean, I just remember um, television, you know, is, is, is the reason radio is so much better than television. It really is, is that um, television is so highly collaborative. And that's a good thing. I mean, I, I always love my colleagues and, and it's, it's a wonderful thing putting a show together. But there are so many elements that go into it. And with a radio show, you know, it's, it's basically up to you to get it done. And if it doesn't get done, it, it doesn't get done. So I do remember the first television show because uh, Channel 59 here 
which was then called WPDS, Indianapolis is what they called it. We signed on, uh, we were going to sign on January 1st, 1984, but the ground was too cold and they couldn't get the tower in the ground. So February 1st, 84 was the sign-on day. And the first show I ever did, um, and I was 23 years old, um, they had a cocktail party. The studio was here. And then over to the side, they had a cocktail party with the mayor and the governor and all these, you know, advertisers. And they were all, you know, mighty old compared to me. I'd never been on television really before in my life. I'd never read off a teleprompter live in my life. So I remember that, yeah, I was just kind of, you know, first of all, I wanted a gin and tonic. They were over there sipping those gin and tonic. I'm reading about, you know, war in Zimbabwe or something. Uh, but I, yeah, I just remember how surreal it was to be that age uh, wearing pancake makeup for the first time in my life. By the way, that will destroy all of your white shirts. Just be ready for that. Yeah. Uh, I do, so I do remember that distinctly. And just the fact that, you know, we made it through and nobody had an aneurysm or heart attack. And I just moved to North Carolina, Asheville, and uh, I'd been on the air about six months. I don't know. Bought my first house. And so I was nearing my first summer there. And I was looking forward to working on my house and just having an idyllic, you know, I, I was going to work, but I was doing the news every night at 6 and 11. So I had my mornings to myself and enjoy the great outdoors of North Carolina. And I got called into the, the news director's office and he said, uh, Ken, this uh, June is going to be the millennium of the Russian Orthodox Church, and Billy Graham's going there, and we're going to send you to cover it. And you know, I should have been overjoyed, right? But stupid twenty-seven-year-old me, I, and I didn't, I didn't let on that was, you know. But all I could think of was, oh, but I want to, I want to work on my deck, and oh, you know, ten days in the Soviet Union. So we get over there, and uh, we get there, and they they told us there'd be transportation, and we had these big crates of tapes and cameras and things, and there were three of us. There was no such vehicle, no such person there. So we had to we had to negotiate with some, you know, young Soviet. We went to our hotel, which was just beyond squalid, and then came back to the airport to capture Billy Graham's arrival in Moscow. You know, the the plane pulls up and the door opens, and he's he's like six four, six five. He, Billy was a very big man but came right over and hugged me. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized the reason I'm here is I work in Billy Graham's market. He watches me every night. You know, it was the strangest thing in the world. And so uh, that, was, that was probably the most remarkable experience in my journalism career, just because it was June of 1987. So the Berlin Wall had not yet fallen. Gorbachev had just taken over. They had these ceremonies and Raisa Gorbachev would attend. The, the Russian government was openly embracing the possibility that people could express faith, you know, if they chose to, which is the way it should be. I mean, so yeah, to get to know Billy Graham, to watch the change that was going on there, to talk with Soviets about, um, I mean, people on the streets of the Soviet Union in 1987, it was 88, I'm sorry, June of 88, they knew they probably had a bootleg copy of Paul McCartney and Wings of Wildlife. You know, they mm. they probably, well, they, they knew David Cassidy. Um, they, they were fixated on American culture and our genes and our way of life and just having opportunities to you know, sample what we had. And it's not to say that um, the, the West has it right. I mean, we, we all need to learn from each other, but they were, they were so told, you know, these things are wrong, you can't have them. Rolling, they got a copy of Rolling Stone magazine, which today is a fashion magazine, but back then it was a rock and roll magazine. Um, you know, they, they would just, it was, it was like uh, the lost ark. You know, they, they found this thing that had all the secrets to the universe. And to think, to, to think of growing up in a world without Beatles music that you had to yeah. steal 
brought to you in some nefarious way uh, is so strange. So to be uh, a 27 year old guy in that environment and watching what they had to eat, watching how they lived, seeing their hope, you know, for a better life and, and dispelling all these notions, because we grew up thinking they're going to get us, you know, someday they're going to get mad, pop the button, and we're all going to go away. And when you met people on the street, and you realize that they were kind and compassionate people, and they had the same fears and, and hopes that we do. Do you feel that as a reporter, you've always been in a privileged position? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, and when, when, when it goes away, I'll tell you, you, uh, you think back at moments in 19, it was right before I left Fort Wayne. So it would have been 86 or 87. I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana doing the news and the, the show was over. And back then, the, the old media universe, the show was at 11. By 11.35, newsroom was barren with me, with my tie down and, you know, probably sitting back in an editing bay like this. And one of our photographers hit on the two-way and said, uh, news base, you know, this is unit four. And so I went over, yeah, unit four, what's up? I said, I, I'm at the airport. I think Gerald Ford just landed in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I really raced down there and met him in the parking lot, literally standing by himself. Just, I mean, you know, it, it's just amazing. That's only 34 years ago, right? But you know, the former president of the United States is standing in his little outbuilding at midnight by himself. Ray Stoip was the photographer. And I said to Ray, Ray, we're going to go in and I'm going to, I'm going to approach him and um, shake his hand and, you know, see if he'll talk to us. Well, he was not in a good mood because he, he'd been giving a speech somewhere and they hit some lightning and, you know, plane had to make an emergency landing. So he just wanted to get home. Uh, so I said, uh, President Ford, I, you know, it's not every day a former president makes an emergency landing in our city and I happen to be here and I feel some obligation to report this. So I'll, I'll make a deal with you. I will ask you three questions. You can answer monosyllabically. You know, you can just go, oof, or, you know, arf. And, you know, <laughs> I may use it, but uh, my deal is I'm not going to ask any follow-up questions. I'll ask you three questions and you can do with it what you want. And you're, okay, okay, great. So we, we rolled. It was very brief and he was you know, very standoffish. Um, so we finished and um, he started to loosen up. But, you know, he, he gave me a hearty handshake on the way uh, to the car. And, uh, and I thanked him again for being understanding. People don't have those experiences. You know, uh, you, you, you might have one in your life where you come out of a hotel. And, and then the second thing is um, my babysitter when I was three or four took me to see Hard Day's Night. And I left my George doll in the theater. Imagine what that thing would be worth today. I'd be, you know, I'd have twice as many CDs behind me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul McCartney, um, who, uh, you know, hadn't played live. My first show ever was the uh, Wings Over America, 1976, the Chicago Stadium. So 1989, he went back out. And it was, I guess it was in February of 1990. He came to Indianapolis on that uh, Flowers in the Dirt tour. And they had a news conference downtown. Of course, I made sure I was the guy to go. I don't know how I actually got that assignment, but uh, there might have been like eight of us in the room in Market Square Arena, which is now demolished. But uh, when Paul McCartney walks into a room, I got to tell you, and I've been around presidents, I've been around Desmond Tutu, I've been around Gene Kirkpatrick, I've been around, I spent the day with Tony Blair and um, David Cameron, who's, you know, mm -hmm. David Cameron apparently loves his DePaul baseball cap because, you know, it's, it's a gold D. And he, got, he's, he told uh, a mutual friend that he golfs in it all the time and tells people the D is for David. Oh, Ricky. <laughs> 
he, he's, a, he's a very funny guy. But I'll never forget uh, Tony Blair with a group of our students um, talking about his love of David Bowie, how he let his hair grow. A fa- yeah, which is a fascinating thing. Yeah, he, he spoke like we would of the music that he loved. Uh, so yeah, Bowie was an impact uh, on Tony Blair. But when Paul McCartney walks into a room, everything stops. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most jaded reporter just kind of goes, you know, what do you do? Because he can kind of boo, 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 table, you know, okay. And so I had a question ready. Uh, and so I asked him about uh, when the Beatles came to Indianapolis in 1964 and Ringo disappeared. The thing about Paul is he, he's been asked every question 160,000 times. Uh, so I, I was trying to dig for something that if he'd thought about it, it had been a long time. And yeah, I could tell he was kind of bemused. Um, yeah. His answer actually was not, it wasn't completely correct. I'm not accusing him of anything. I think it had been so long since he thought about it. But when I met Ringo, um, and Ringo is so fit. I mean, he, is, he doesn't have an ounce of fat on his body. It's, he, he's in remarkable shape. He seems to be getting younger. And he's, he's, he's not very tall. And he was, he was so charming. And, um, and I, I asked Ringo about that day at the Indiana State Fair. And he actually filled in some blanks. He said, uh, you know, and he's, he's a recovering alcoholic. So he, he had not had a drink in a long time. But he said, oh, I got in the police car and I was going around the track. I never knew that. And he said, I was hammered. <laughs> so it was great. And, uh, but, you know, I could see, you know, he, he was like, oh, I haven't thought about that one in a while. So we had this, this you know, back and forth about it. And I told him that um, if you look on YouTube, uh, the story is up there, but I talked to the state trooper who's now deceased. Jack Marks was his name. And he, uh, he was the accomplice. He was the state trooper who was, uh, you know, Ringo got restless and it was mm-hmm. overnight, probably one in the morning and just got out of his room. And this Jack Marks guy took him up to Carmel, Indiana. They stopped at a diner and uh, I think they stopped at his home too. But, you know, he, Ringo was so engaged. It, it, was, it was really remarkable. You know, you, what you always hope when you have a conversation with someone is that you connect on some level that's not just like, hey, I like your work. You know, it was very cool. He's a charming man. But you have an ability to make people feel at ease. And I'm sure all the interviews you've ever done with people, they have felt they are your friend. That means that that's like the nicest thing somebody said to me in six months. It's really sweet. You are one of the good guys of journalism. Oh, thank you. I, 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 I'm really, I mean, I think that um, I always, it's a, it's a crazy privilege to be able to come into people's living rooms and you don't know what their life circumstances are, but you know, what you don't want to be is um, in their face. You want to be assuring, you want to be kind. Um, but it's, it's a magical thing. Um, I, when you, when you leave that and you just take a, you know, a job, because we all have jobs and, and that, that doesn't make them any better or worse. They're just, I would always tell people that doing what I did for that time, I was like, it was like working at a, at a department store, but it was at a, you were in the window and it was at a busy intersection and it was Christmas, you know, lots of people peeking in and most people go to work and they, they get in their office and they do their thing and they, it's five o'clock and they leave and, you know, nobody's watching, nobody's taking notes and it, it doesn't make it any more or less important. But when you start doing something that is kind of behind the scenes, you realize just what a, what a magical thing it is because you go to the shopping mall and a little old lady says, you know, I, I really enjoy your show, but, you know, well, well, thank you. We'll take that under advisement. It's very kind of you. No, it's, it's sweet of you to say that because I, I really believe we're all here. 
to make the place better for the next group. And um, it's little karmic things you do. It's not big grand gestures. It's, you know, I'm writing a check to charity's great. If you can save a school bus from going off a cliff by yourself, that's heroic. I mean, more power to you, but it's little daily choices you make, interactions, smiles, eye contact, you know, deciding not to get mad when somebody's being that person. Frankly, it's getting harder for all of us. I think the, yeah, we, we live in remarkable times because there are so many ways to communicate, but we do a worse job of it than we ever have. But I find that people perhaps don't absorb the news as thoroughly as they used to. And certainly as when we were trained as, as journalists, we were told to read every single national newspaper every morning. Yes. And we understood the value of, of news. Do you think maybe the generation that's coming through now um, is losing something in the way they perceive what news is? Oh, absolutely. I think um, there's about five things I could say. First of all, what is defined as news? When I got into the business, which was 1981, 82, um, stations were just realizing they could make money doing news. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, it was a public service. It was something they did because they needed to be licensed and they needed to make the government happy. And, and by that, it, they didn't need to make a political party happy. They needed to produce information for the public good that was balanced, allowed them to sell ads the rest of the day. But news was seen as an obligation and not a cash cow. In the 80s, you started to see satellite technology, live trucks, a move toward a cameras, which used to be massive. It was 16 millimeter film, which took 18 hours to develop down to three quarter inch tape, which was clumsy and Guys had to be the hunchback in Notre Dame to be a photographer. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the emphasis went from, what are we telling you that you need to know? Which may be strife in the streets of uh, Israel. You know, it may be something that isn't down the street. You can't even, most people can't visualize on a map. We started to add a half an hour of news, a half an hour of news, morning news chunk. And all of a sudden, the stories were more about, you know, news you can use. Okay, how do you lose that five pounds you've been trying to lose for a long time? You know, the hell with Israel. I mean, what are you? Stop eating those Twinkies or whatever it is. And then the cat caught in the drain thing. That was another phenomenon. And then as these things picked up, yeah, just things submitted, stupid things. And so what we define as news has changed. I think the agenda is more driven by what people respond to and watch. And when people watch, you can charge more for advertising than it is by the public good. Something that will make your life richer if you know it. Um, running the lecture series I do, I can tell you that um, we've gone, we had Margaret Thatcher in 1992 before I was there, but it was one of her few post-Prime Minister speeches anywhere. We filled a gym, over 4,000 people there. It's heads of state. I mean, if I brought in Netanyahu today, I think, I think Margaret Thatcher, by the way, was $50,000 for that speech. Today, you know, it's 300. She'd be 500, I'll bet you. But the other side of it is that I don't think anybody cares. You know, Margaret Thatcher today, as, as you know, whatever you think of her, she was of that moment. She was a big person. She could command an audience and she could. I'm, I'm, I'm now offered um, undersecretaries of state. I mean, people that could walk through any airport in America and not be recognized who want 75. Uh, no, the whole speaker thing has gone crazy. Um, and, and yet I think that if I brought in a YouTube sensation, whatever the hell that is, but, you know, somebody who does dumb things or TikTok, um, I draw a lot more people than I would with Netanyahu or Gordon Brown because the kids today, you know, when we were young, 
you were aware of world leaders, you were aware of the world's trouble spots. I think it's amazing, again, with all the, the information we get now, the way it's funneled to us is actually narrower. We choose, we choose the little rabbit hole we're going to live in politically. And, you know, do you like pets? Do you like uh, workouts? Mm. Do you like you know, food? And so you, your, your news is delivered, but it's, 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 um, it's curated. And, mm. and it gets to you in a way so that you're going to be pleased by it. It's going to comport with things that you already know or care about. And your universe doesn't expand. You know, life is all about finding new things you like. I, I worry about our curiosity. I worry about what it's doing to our ability to dialogue and find compromise because anything that's meaningful in the world is not you winning, or me winning. It's the two of us talking about it and finding some common ground. So yeah, I, I think that we, we grew up at a time where as quaint as it was, there were news organizations that were responsible. They weren't always perfect, but they vetted. They decided that's important and that's not important. Because the problem now is we have unregulated media. Yes, yes. If it's on the internet, it has to be true. Right. And, and you know, then there are people who are masterful at creating web pages that look like they're Newsweek magazine. It's yes. not called Newsweek, but it looks like it's a news site. It looks like it's legitimate. And it's some guy in his mom's basement who couldn't get a job and he's 26 drinking beer all day, you know, making things up. Yeah. And, and somehow there are people out there that go, oh, yeah, yeah. But when the big news stories hit, that's when the real news reporters rise. They do. And I, I agree. Uh, you do see, you know, uh, the Boston sex abuse in the church thing was a, a, a great moment for journalism. Terrible story, obviously. But mm. what worries me, Louise, is all these kind of, you know, little pebbles in the stream that keep floating that aren't reported. There, there are so few real reporters out there and they're doing great work many of them. Resources are depleted. Newsrooms are reliant on advertising dollars in ways they never were before. <clears throat> if you go into a newsroom these days, literally there is a scoreboard and it shows in real time what people are clicking on. Exactly. And, and so, you know, somebody could put up a story about, Louise and Ken talked about all kinds of things, including David Cassidy today. And, you know, to be up there for 10 minutes and that coyote who wandered into a Walmart in Texas is, you know, a lot more popular than they are. And so, you know, pretty soon it's like a record, you know, yeah. you put yeah. it out there, nobody plays it, it's gone. And, um, and there are many more important things in this conversation. This is a wonderful thing, but um, I just worry about foreign affairs and even Afghanistan. And I'm not going to get into that, but no. uh, it, it's not like it started last week. It's not like anybody really wanted us there ever, but we were under four presidents. Yeah. But, you know, it, it always becomes this blame game. It, it's, it's deeper than that. And I think we need to have the ability to step back from things and say, well, yeah, that wasn't handled well, but that wasn't too good either. Of all the people that you have in interviewed, who was your favorite? Uh, it's, it's probably Todd Rundgren because uh, I, and I think I've told him this, you know, um, his story is, is so unique in that, you know, he was essentially a teen idol. He used to, back in 16 Magazine, used to cover the NAS. It's an interesting story in that you're in this kind of semi-fabricated band. They go to record their first record over in the UK. And the person who is the producer back in those days, it was just a guy that, you know, basically made sure the session didn't go over and that everybody got paid and that, you know, the thing wasn't overmodulated when they delivered it. They got into the sessions and Todd realized this guy was kind of laissez-faire and he effectively learned engineering and producing doing that record. And wound up producing the NASA's second record, which wound up being a second and third because they split it in half. 
Todd quit the band before it came out. And he basically was homeless for a while. The crazy thing about Todd Rundgren is he's like Forrest Gump or, uh, or Zelig. You know, he's been in the room for all these things. He's got stories about everybody. And he remembers the detail. It's, it's, I mean, I wish I had that. And I, I only discovered that probably when I did the thing at DePaul with him, which went two hours and it probably could have gone six. I had all kinds of things I wanted to ask him. There's something about his career that um, he's always done it his own way. He makes records for himself. He's, you know, all the records he's produced. It's, it's, it's just an, it's an, it's an amazingly singular career. And in some ways, he reminds me of my dad. I remind me of my dad. But he's, um, yeah, he's just, he's, he's, he's just a very smart guy. And, and it goes way beyond music. In fact, I would say I'm more fascinated by his ability to see around corners. And he loves, he loves crossword puzzles. He spends his entire day with his iPad in his lap doing crossword puzzles. And he complains because, yeah, I never knew this, but apparently there are some days the crossword puzzle is harder than other days. I guess earlier in the week is when the, they're easy and then they get progressively harder. So he likes the really hard ones. And he has a vocabulary like this. So it's, he's a really fascinating guy. And, um, and when I started interviewing him, um, the ground was not that plowed. I think that, uh, uh, you know, he was at a stage of his career where, um, I mean, there were a lot of things written and said about him, but I think the, the overriding notion was that he was some, some kind of um, pompous guy who was hard to work with, meticulous and mercurial. So the first time I interviewed him, I, I was just trying to, th- I didn't write anything down. I wanted the conversation to be organic and I wanted to veer toward kind of more spiritual. He's tuned into the world and you can be that. You can recite anything, but it's the way you live. It's the way you think. It's the way you operate. It's, you know, the things you say. And so I wanted to get into that area without being an idiot. You know, I think in 1995, he said he was going to stop touring when he moved to Hawaii. And I, I said, that's going to last six months because he's a ham. It's like David was a ham. You know, he's got to be in front of people. And if you're not in front of people, bad things start to happen, right? You know, you... This you, is it. I mean, you've seen the reaction when you've been on stage. If you can imagine playing to stadia of 70, 80, 90,000 people... How on earth do you cope when you come off stage and you're alone? Right. And I think, uh, and and then David, the trick bag with that was he's playing 70 or 80,000 people that want to hear the Partridge family stuff and want him to be, that was the height of his career. I think the thing David never was able to do was to go out and say, this is, this is me. This is my stuff. This is authentically me. You know, I got no problem with Keith Partridge, but. Tonight, you're going to get my material and it's going to be done in the way I, and it's not going to be 80,000 and the roar may not be as great, but I, I think in some ways, if you have an audience that loves you, and David has a, a very loyal audience that was once very large, but I don't think he ever, and I don't say this at all critically, I think it's just a fact. I don't think he ever really knew how to engage that audience. And I think many of us wanted, as we talked about earlier, wanted to wanted to get in the kitchen. We wanted to kind of understand him a little better. Wanted to, you know, wanted songs that were more reflective of him. And those, those, you know, the final years where he was just going on and basically, you know, playing state fairs and, and buskering, uh, it was the saddest thing because it, again, was the very thing he spent the 70s complaining about. It was a very sad ending. Did it make you sad? I think it made a lot of people sad because we wanted to remember the good times. Mm-hmm. And they did a documentary a few years back showing him recording his final songs. 
um, songs my father taught me. It's funny as you get older, toward the end, David looked like Jack. Hairline was, you know, resembling Jack's. Um, and, you know, in some ways, um, I would recommend this to anybody, whether you like Bruce Springsteen or not. And I, I, I find him fascinating. Um, he's, he's a remarkable guy. And there was an interview he did maybe seven years ago, five years ago. But uh, he talked openly about his depression and about his relationship with his dad. In that interview, he says something along the lines of, you know, you got a choice in your life. You can either become the person you're destined to be or change up. You know, his father and he had a tough relationship. Todd Rundgren and his father had a very tough relationship. David, I think, um, from the things I've read and heard, you know, um, worshipped his father from afar, but was largely raised by his mother and um, probably never felt the kind of love that he wanted to. And then, and I'm putting myself in somebody else's shoes, which is never a good thing to do, but um, to have the success he had in the Partridge family when Jack's career was in the absolute you know, dumpster could not have helped that relationship. While Jack, I'm sure, was very proud of David in his own way, how that's articulated and how the envy manifests itself can be tricky. And so in my case, you know, my, my, my parents were married until the day my dad died. And I love my mom still alive. She has dementia, but she's hanging in there. I love them both deeply. Um, I'm not sure they always should have been together. And um, it's interesting that I have three, I have two siblings and I have a brother and neither of us, the two boys have been married. I, I really wanted to have kids. Uh, and it pains me at age 60 that I let that train, you know, get through the valley without stopping it. There's something in that, you know, and I'm, I'm revealing probably too much here, but there's, you know, we all, we all see behavior that's modeled when we're kids and we don't understand that. It just, you know, goes in the back of our head somewhere, but yeah, at some point it manifests itself. Bruce Springsteen goes on a Broadway stage every night and that's how he exercises his demons. And I'm sure they still come back and bite him. The, 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 the thing that really struck me and I haven't watched the documentary and I, I know it's out there and I, I've, willfully avoided it because I know it's going to be painful, but I do need to see it. And I know that weren't his last words, so much wasted time. I mean, that's a hell of an epitaph. It's easy to go, oh, poor guy. But there are takeaways in everybody's lives. Back to the Springsteen thing. He's, he's telling, uh, he's relaying a conversation with a psychiatrist. I'm having really dark thoughts. And life is really hard. And the psychiatrist says something like, yeah, but you're Bruce Springsteen. And he said, no. Bruce Springsteen's a guy that jumps around on stage and plays a guitar for three and a half hours. He happens to inhabit my body, but uh, that's not me. And yeah, it's those other 21 hours, you know, where you've got to reconcile all the things that have happened to you, the failures that you perceive that maybe aren't there. Some of them are, but um, I was having a, well, I went to North Carolina last week with a good friend. We talk about these things a lot. I told him that uh, I, I spend a lot of time these days thinking about the Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? You know, and I, I, and I, I don't mean that sadly, but um, when you're 24, you know, life is this, I mean, it's, you know, it's your world. The movies are yours, the music's yours, you know, the fashion yours. It's, it's all, it's all geared around you because you're the perfect demographic. And then you get to be about 37, 38 and you realize hmm, punk's behind me. You're catching up. Yeah. And then you get to be 60 and you realize, you know, your grandparents are gone. If you're lucky, you have a parent or two. A lot of your friends have gone unexpectedly. None of this stuff was scripted. There wasn't a book you could read to prepare you for a parent's dementia or things that change in your life, relationships that go sour. When you're 22, 
it's a Disney movie and it's always going to end with the slipper fitting and the music swelling and, you know, the beautiful blonde, always white princess, you know, going off into the distance with her bow to have babies. And, but, you know, you get to this age and you realize, you know, uh, it's a bullet train and it's going one place. And, um, and we knew that and that's okay. Well, we thought that happened to somebody else. I guess my point is if you, if you look at David's story, it's, it's really easy to have pity. It's really important to have compassion. We all struggle. We all can learn. And we, we all can use better coping mechanisms. Four years after his death, all this love out there. And yet, I just, I, I still can't believe he's gone. You know, I can remember climbing off the set after that impromptu interview I did in 1994 and thinking, I think I just made him feel a little better. I didn't know that he needed it. You know, that's, I mean, who would have known David Cassidy needed it? Um, but we're all very hard on ourselves. Here's another story. Um, I was in the, the station, Wish TV, and there were three vending machines, I think. And Shirley Jones is sitting there. I mean, Shirley Jones is sitting there. And he looks a little glum. You know, she's kind of... And so, uh, of course, I had to go say hi, right? So uh, I just went over and I said, Miss Jones, I'm Ken Owen. I work here at the station. And I just want to tell you, I'm the Partridge family was a major influence on my life. And I loved you in Oklahoma. I'm a gantry. I mean, I, I mentioned a couple of things. but. Uh, you know, she lit up and she was very nice, but uh, I just thought, you know, here's this legend. But it would be like if you encountered uh, Betty Grable or Harrison Ford at a truck stop. They were in where those hot dogs spin around, you know. It was, yes. the, uh, and she was so, she was just Shirley. She wasn't giddy, but she wasn't down and she was very nice. What do you consider David's best work? First of all, with the Partridge family and secondly, as a solo artist. I probably need to spend more time with bulletin board and crossword puzzle. You know, they were late entries and they, the energy was declining. Sound magazine. I love Echo Valley, 26809, um, One Night Stand, Summer Days, um, Summer Days especially. I don't know. It, it, it just seems like it kind of reached its pinnacle. And it's probably just the, the moment in my life where I was. David, I would say home is where the heart is just because... Uh, and dreams are nothing more than wishes is probably number two. I was at um, a Corvette's, K-O-R-V-E-T-T. I had no idea David Cassidy had a new record. So I'm at Corvette's and, and there it was, you know, five ninety nine, and I got it home. I had uh, The Higher They Climb. My dad had picked that up for me downtown on cassette. And I liked that record, but Home is Where the Heart Is, um, I, to me, a, a little more cohesive, I think, uh, The Higher They Climb. Um, and I, again, I love it. But a couple of songs in there aren't as good as the others. And and then thematically, I probably, as a 14-year-old, um, was saddened, you know, by the, the back cover. You know, uh, that he felt that way, obviously. Home is Where the Heart Is, it, it seemed like he had kind of he'd left that cul-de-sac. It's no longer going to be about the guy that he was. He was just going to be him. And I think... Um, and if this ain't love and uh, January, which I didn't realize was a cover by Pilot. Love that song. He made it his own. Uh, yeah, they're just um, breaking down again. It, there are no clunkers. What if David Cassidy had rolled that record out and called himself, you know, Fred Enid or something, you know, and adopted a different persona? Would it have gotten a different reaction? My sense is it would have. And when you do play David's solo work to anyone, they're astonished. They think it's just going to be bubblegum team fear. You got to admire the way he kept, you know, coming back. I mean, he was like, you know, like the Energizer Bunny. It must have just been frustrating as hell to roll the RCA records out. And you think, well, record companies are funny because if, if, if you can make it easy for a record company 
you're always going to win. They're only going to work a certain number of records. It's a lot easier to work a George Harrison record than it is a Todd Bundren record. It's a lot easier to work a David Bowie record, who is in our, on RCA, than it is a, a David Cassidy record. It, it, it would have taken a lot of creativity, vision, and luck to represent David Cassidy as something new. And I think, so the fact he tried is remarkable in and of itself. The fact the stuff is that good is even more remarkable. So 1985 in Romance, um, I just keep coming back to that because you got George Michael on backing vocals. Like the Donny Osmond record, you play it and you go, who is this guy? In America never even had a chance. I like to think that he's left a musical legacy that future generations will continue to discover and start to embrace. Yeah, and I, you know, you, you're right. Uh, I think the, the thing about David's story, it, it just haunts you because um, in a way that, that Elvis and Michael Jackson haunt you, you know, I, I, the fact that he could die on the toilet um, alone with his girlfriend in the bedroom just seems so strange. My, my great fear is people don't see me for a couple of days and they come snooping around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you can shrug that off because I'm Ken Owen. This is Elvis Presley. You know, I mean, there's always somebody checking on Elvis Presley. Then it happens again with Michael Jackson. And David's tale is, is, as we talked about earlier, here's a guy that had love coming from all directions. People that thought the, the latter shows were great. You know, I, I was in the minority or during COVID, I have four, five, six day periods where I didn't see a human being. But I found myself thinking about David and loneliness and, you know, and drinking and, and all those things. I think it's, yeah. it's where none of us are impervious to what life throws at us. And um, so, yes, it is tragic. But um, the, the flip side of that is he's touched so many people. Mm -hmm. If two people on a street corner have a conversation about me that lasts two minutes, that's anything as warm as this, four years after I die, I'll feel pretty good about it. Yeah. So the fact that people are, you know, his, his memory continues on. And I think for those of us who love David, and I'm one of them, um, we, uh, we should we should lobby while we're still here to get more of the stuff out. All kinds of um, presumably artifacts that have never really seen the light of day publicly. You go on eBay and you can buy the vinyl versions of the songs as they were presented to David to learn whether they exist in some other form or whether you just do needle drops. Uh, it would be nice to get all the Partridge family stuff in one nice you know, box. Yeah, a nice treasure chest of memories. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, the... It took so long for the stuff to come out. And it's, it's my view that the Razor and Tie CDs actually sound the best. I only have a couple of the, the Cherry Reds. I don't know what they, 70s, is that what they call the, the label? Yes. That seems to be the same. Uh, Cherish, for instance, has some really weird squishiness going on. I don't know if you've mm. noticed. I, I would love for somebody to revisit that record in particular. That they should take the Partridge family and David's solo work and do with them what they have done with Roy Orbison, Carpenters, and Elvis, uh, re-record them with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. Because a lot of the Partridge music lends itself to a full orchestration. I agree. And the same on some of his solo work, especially from the Cherish album. You know, My mm -hmm. First Night Alone Without You, given a Royal Philharmonic with that voice. Yeah. It could be just reintroducing everyone to the unique voice that he had and the music that he made. Oh, that would be great. I worry that um, there, there, there may only be one strike left. The idea of a, a comprehensive box set, and you make it limited edition, 2,500 or 5,000, you charge a premium price for it. But David's gone. Um, I don't think anybody 
associated with those records really has any issues. And I, I would just put the whole stinking mass together and it could be a, it could be a 20, you could charge out the wazoo for it. Cause there are 2,500 or 5,000 of us who would buy it. And we know when it's gone, it's gone. And the monkeys put out their series on Blu-ray a couple years ago on Rhino. And it was limited, I think to 2000 and they sold out and they're gone while we still have physical media. And while we still have, um, energy as, as you know former fans fans that grew up with this stuff it's time is of the essence and i just worry in 10 or 15 years there just won't be a market there won't be the energy and uh i think you know louise you and your followers and my friends i mean i would love to have just all in one box and that is what we strive for and i think that's what his legacy is all about well somebody out there will do it i think you know there's if there's money to be had and that's the bottom it's the world we live in somebody will see that his is a very unique career. I mean, when you think about music careers, I can think of like four that are, you know, really unique. Uh, I would say John Mellencamp's career is unique in its own way in that he was um, like David, you know, he was signed as John Cougar and they had him singing old, you know, Roy Orbison songs and, you know, people weren't buying it and people laughed at it. I remember he, they had a, par- a parade down in Seymour, Indiana when that first record came out in 1976, Chestnut Street Incident. And, you know, it's his hometown, but like they had to like badger people to show up for the parade to bounce back from being signed by, was it Tony DeFries, who was a Bowie's agent? Tony saw John as, as James Dean, as kind of a, a throwback, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll market him. The music doesn't matter. To go through that debacle and get terrible reviews and have your name changed and to come back in the way he did is, that just doesn't happen. It just no. doesn't. Unlike David, he didn't have the, the, the burden of reruns. But if David was 35 today, you look at a guy like Harry Styles, you're able to recreate yourself. You just go back and you look at the fan club numbers, the number of people that were attending his concerts, the record sales. And when that's happening, and he knew it, that's, that's, a, that's a time glass, you know, the time capsule, you turn it and the, the, the grains come out and you know, all of a sudden, game over. So you know when you're in that moment that you've got, a two or three year window. How you transition out of that? Again, given the time in which he was a star, I'm not sure it would have made a big difference. But it's just so sad because uh, he had so much to offer the world. And and what if the Partridge family wouldn't have happened? You know, there are a lot of people with talent like David's who never appear anywhere. The fact that we had that time and that he had that impact and is so amazing. If he had come onto the scene as a solo artist without the Partridge family baggage. Would he have been a huge international star as a solo artist? I think he could have been. It, it might have been. Well, you know, you were explaining to me the Partridge family was not the same thing in the UK. UK fans, they loved his style. They loved who he was. I guess I'd go to, you know, Rick Springfield was interesting because he, there was a children's show, Saturday morning children's show on CBS when I was like 11 that Rick Springfield was on. But that was my first exposure to Rick Springfield. And then he had a single called Speak to the Sky, if you remember that. But then he went away for a while. You know, Rick Springfield, um, he's a musician. So in some ways, he and David had somewhat the same taint. I think that Rick was older at that point, though, and probably more willing to, you know, bear with it. But it's interesting. He's been able to have a long career that basically started in, 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 in conjunction with a television David had a level of stardom that so few people, I, I don't think we'll see a star like David Cassidy again. The only things we have as a country, you know, used to be we had the three TV networks, you had the Super Bowl, election night, you know, these things that brought people together. 
uh, those, those are so few in number now. It's so hard to get a critical mass behind anything. You can have, and we were talking about this the other day, you can have a group of 20-year-olds have a pool party. And what music do they play? Right now, they play the 80s because that's something they all recognize. They each have their own modern, and I think modern music is great. It's, again, like, like our news, like our politics, it's siloed. So you can like something, or television, you can like something and your friends have no idea what it is. And it could be wildly popular. So I think um, to reach the kind of level David Cassidy did, David Cassidy was, was essentially Elvis Presley reincarnate. Elvis's energy came from exposing a white audience to sounds that were traditionally heard on Southern Black radio and performed by Black people. So you've got a very strikingly handsome guy who had a great stage persona and his phrasing and everything were pretty cool too. Um, it was just a, it was a perfect mix. David had the disadvantage of, of not coming from music. He had the disadvantage of being hired as an actor and winding up singing songs that were, you know, presented to him by other people. But um, the, the power of television at that moment and the marketing machine of teen magazines and record company and uh, everything in between the bubblegum cards. Uh, I just, I don't think we'll ever see that again. Besides just talent and uh, timing, I don't think culturally we can create a, an explosive that's that powerful. We, we're too fractured. And so we can, have, we can have many David Cassidy's and you can have people that um, have great talent, but, and maybe people would just say, I think I love you. And the, the times and the way we lived and the way we communicated and the way things were fed to us uh, made something like his enormous success possible. And it was fueled crazy fire by his talent. You know, there's a show business lineage. And um, I'll, I'll say this, we live in a Kardashian culture today. So you have people that are stars because they had sex in a hotel room or because they got drunk and fell down in the street, you know, or they, they put up stupid videos where they're naked or half naked or pretending they're naked or David Cassidy had to sing a song. And it may not have been the song he wanted to sing. It may not have been the song that he wanted to be remembered by, but he had to show up, he had to do work, he had to continue doing work. That's how celebrity has changed. Now you can just be a moron and be called a celebrity. David Cassidy, Bobby Sherman, Ricky Nelson, the, the teen celebrities of their day, there was something that stood alongside of them. It wasn't their persona. Uh, David Cassidy could act. David Cassidy could sing like a lark. And so when, when people talk about, you know, well, we still have celebrities, um, pardon me, they're just dumbass things. I mean, they're doing things that are designed to provoke responses and they're 15 second videos that you can just, you know, run over and over again on Twitter and get attention. But to get the kind of attention David got week after week and to sell all those records and to get the TV ratings they had, you are who you are because of past decisions and there's no way to change it. But as you said earlier, it's about the happiness that he brought us through his yeah. music, the love from every corner of the world. And there's not many people who can say that. Yeah, and I, and I absolutely. And I think, you know, you also, uh, when you walk into the world, you just have to remember the way he comported himself, at least publicly. You know, a lot of the joy he brought you is just his demeanor and his spirit. We need more of that. Yes, I'll lick my lolly later. You know, have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> love it. But no, it's been fabulous. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for the opportunity. This is fun. My pleasure. Thank you. So that's it for the show this week. I want to thank Ken for his time and sharing so many amusing and insightful stories. If you are a new listener, 
and would like to hear all the episodes since August 2020, visit your preferred podcast provider to find us and subscribe for free so you will be among the first to know when new episodes are released. This has been Louise Poynton. You can read more about David and what he has meant to fans and millions of people around the world in my book, Cherish David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love, available from Amazon and all major bookshops, in-store or online. So until we meet again, take care.